we know that the Holy Spirit's role is to lead us into all truth and to show us things to come. And we need to be able to put these uh, events together, these different things that we're going to look at today, and see how they all fit into the framework and the scheme of history. Before, so before we begin, let's take this time for prayer, present ourselves in front of the throne of grace, and ask the Holy, that the Holy Spirit would really be our teacher. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that uh, you would indeed enlighten us today and challenge us. We thank you for the blessings. We thank you for the test. We thank you for all that you brought into our life. And Father, we know that sometimes the tests are easier, sometimes they're more difficult. And yet, indeed, we have, um, uh, we have the resources through you and your word to be able to handle anything we face. So Father, I pray today as we come together... Uh, be at uh, online. I pray, Father, that uh, indeed that, that everything that comes out today would be from your word and your will. And Father, we pray you'd nourish our souls with this. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal last week, on the front page, there is a run on jigsaw puzzles as people cope with this COVID-19 virus. Now, we indeed live in a land of confusion, and what's going on? Who's in charge? What's the best way to cope with the situation? And so it goes. Who would have ever thought that jigsaw puzzles would ever be more sought after than a sporting event, television show, or, in other words, how quickly life can change? Much has been said, and a lot more is going to be said before we're past this viral situation. Speculation is rampant, fear is prevalent, and among, often among God's people as well as the rest of the unbelieving world. I've heard some say that COVID-19 is caused by God, and others that it is simply the fruit of a fallen world. And more often than not, when we find two extremes, the truth is found somewhere in the middle. What do we know for certain? How do we glorify God in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation is the question that we should ask. Indeed, there are many dynamics at work. <clears throat> Did God actively send the virus as divine discipline or passively permit it as a result of a fallen world? History has shown that he has done both. In either event, the result is divine discipline and testing, which affects the righteous as well as the unrighteous, because in an unrighteous world, the innocent suffer. My analysis is we don't know whether or not it is the directive or permissive will of the Almighty God. Did he send the virus or did he permit it? Old Testament saints often knew for certain because the Lord made it clear through the prophets that he was the cause. Tribulational saints will also know for certain where the judgments are coming from as evidenced by the book of Revelation and the direct statements made from the Lord through the Apostle John. But the fact is, what's going on now, we just don't know. It should be clear the Lord is seeking to not only get the attention of the world, but also the church, because it said in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment is to begin with the household of God. Now, while there are still churches seeking to accurately study and teach the Word of God, 
Many have abandoned its complete inspiration as a doctrinal tenet, and as a result, they've wandered away from the faith, seeking the things of the world instead of the things of God. Some have said that God doesn't lead by fear, but he leads by love. But we do know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So that kind of fear is good. In some countries, there's a movement to put oil lamps over the door to ward off this evil virus. But that's no more than hocus-pocus trying to use the magical arts, uh, delving into spiritism and all the things that go with that. Our time frame is definitely not the tribulation. But on a worldwide scale, it clearly looks like the beginning of birth pangs for this seven-year period uh, to come. The need for the clear teaching of God's Word, rightly handled, has never been more evident in our lifetime than it is now. It's really sad to see the state of the church today, and it's interesting that the church has been shut down from normal operations by an invisible enemy. Some people in this world risk death every Sunday to assemble with the people of God. Most of the church, however, only assembles when there's nothing else better to do. The Apostle Paul warned about this in Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 13. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you might be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. We're all well familiar with that passage because it goes on to talk about the full armor of God and putting that on in our personal lives. The difference here is that this virus, this invisible enemy, comes from flesh and blood. Uh, but the spiritual forces in the heavenly places use it to stir panic and unrest. This virus is certainly an object lesson for the church designed to instruct us again about the really important things of life, the spiritual things, time with the Lord and prayer. Time in His Word and time spent thinking of adjustments in our lives that need to be made. Discipline can clearly come on the church, and it has uh, <clears throat> any time they get out of line. Just read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. There is always a piece of commendation. There is always, almost always a piece of condemnation and a warning about discipline. When things become more important, people, places, things, and events than growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then discipline is going to happen. Is the number of people today in the church who reject the Bible as God's Word being disciplined for their failure or being tested to get serious or both? I'm sure he's trying to use this to wake some people up, give them another opportunity to get it right, before he takes them home or he comes back. Multiple times in the New Testament, we are told to be alert, meaning spiritually alert to the time that we are in. The biggest jigsaw puzzle ever set before humanity is the prophetic framework of the Word of God. Fully one-third of Scripture is prophetic. It's our calling and duty to seek to determine what's yet to be fulfilled, how it all fits together, and our role during our lifetime. Maybe people should spend time learning the Word of God 
rather than for opting for all the jigsaw puzzles. I'm not going to get legalistic about jigsaw puzzles, but it seems that here's an opportunity to put together the most important jigsaw puzzle ever set before the human race. May our Lord use this time that we have of testing to shake us, to wake us. Let us indeed be listed among the overcomers who rise above their culture to be obedient and honoring to God. Why do we put this together? Why do we try to see how it fits together? Because all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God, the woman of God might be mature and thoroughly furnished for all good works. That's what we're trying to do this first session with this study on coming events. These are prophecies that have not been fulfilled of the Word of God. Of the one-third of Scripture, clearly many of them have been fulfilled, but there's a, man, there's a large number of Scriptures that are yet to be fulfilled. So how do they fit together in this jigsaw puzzle? As we're looking at it, we found the corners, which are the dispensations. Those are the things that set the markers and the guidelines. Then we look for the straight lines, which are indeed the givens, the chronologies, the way things that says, after these things, then, after these things, then. And we find these things and start putting together the straight lines of this picture. Then we start assembling the various pieces of the puzzle that look alike. That's the way you put a puzzle together. And by the way, they're a lot of fun. We, uh, as a family, uh, four of us, uh, spent about a month putting together a 500-piece puzzle of a bunch of dogs. And uh, uh, anyway, we it's crazy when you put them together, you hate to take them apart. So we glued the back of it together and put it on a board, and now it's hanging in a grandson's room. So anyway, <laughs> puzzles are fun, but these are fun as well. When we start seeing events where the Lord comes back and he sets his foot on Mount Zion and he defeats all of his enemies, we start looking for puzzle pieces that fit that that scenario. When we find an entity called Babylon with six chapters in the Word of God dedicated to this end-time entity called Babylon, we look for puzzle pieces and we start putting those together. And eventually you figure out where they go on the timeline. We're in uh, Revelation 16 in the second session, and many will ask, well, 17 and 18, doesn't that just follow after uh, the uh, bowl judgments of Revelation 16? After all, that's where it appears in the, the writing of the book of Revelation. But all you have to do is read the chapters and look at the specifics in the chapters, which we're taught, taught to do, and you find out that Life goes on after the destruction of prophetical Babylon. It's different. It's, it's uh, never the same again. But life goes on after that. After the second advent, it does go on, but not with the world. It's not about the kings of the earth not having a place to unload their goods. There are certain things that fit together. So we're trying to put those puzzle pieces together. We've gone through and looked at the different uh Entities as far as the king of the north, king of the south, kings of the east, king of the west, Israel, religious Babylon, and prophetical Babylon. Now we're looking at the tribulation itself. We're in that major section. And last week we looked at Daniel's 70th week, which is a prophecy that deals with the last seven years of the age of Israel. 
Nobody knows exactly when that seven-year period starts. It starts with the rapture, but nobody knows the day and hour of the rapture. And when the Lord uttered those words, he was talking about the second advent. Nobody knew the day and hour of the second advent because that was their frame of reference. But what we do find is that once the rapture is known, the second advent is known. The day and hour of the second advent is known. There's 2,520 days between those two events. And we know that from carefully looking at Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Now, in this next portion of the jigsaw puzzle, we're going to put some pieces together concerning various personalities that we find in the tribulation. There's basically four of them, the 144,000, the two witnesses, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Now, that's pretty, that's what we're going to look at in this particular section of the, uh, of the study, the systematic study of prophecy. Now, who are the 144,000? First of all, they are virgin Jewish Men. Revelation chapter 14, first five verses. Virgin Jewish men. Now, in Revelation 14, he says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Now, that's obviously Second Advent. It's not prior to the Second Advent. We know it's Second Advent of looking at other uh, verses immediately after the tribulation those days the sun shall go dark the Lord talked about it in the Olivet Discourse so we know whenever he comes back to defeat all of his enemies that that's what he's going to do we have other passages we'll look at in a little bit and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their forehead so when he sees them the 144,000 have come back into Israel they join him on Mount Zion. And it says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of, a, of loud thunder. And the voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. They'd been redeemed. They were fallen human beings they were they were uh, jewish by race and they were virgin and it says these are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste they are male virgin jews these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to god and to the lamb and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So while they are being converted, because they're converted either by the rapture itself. They've heard things. They, the, the rapture happens. These are unbelievers when the rapture happens or they wouldn't be left on the earth. They'd be gone. So they're unbelievers who get converted after the rapture. We know that there's an angel that comes through in Revelation 14, 6, giving an eternal gospel to the entire earth. We know there are two witnesses that arrive on the scene that we'll look at a little bit later, Moses and Elijah. And, we, and it could be just a combination. So there are two witnesses who are Jews representing the law and the prophets, and they show up, they're giving the gospel 
the rapture could have got their attention. They said, you know, maybe there was something to this. Maybe Messiah did come the first time, and now he's come back again. And the angel, whatever it was, there's a combination of factors and dynamics, I'm sure, over the 144,000. But they were converted. They are sealed from any harm during the tribulation. Because the same number that were saved at the outset of the tribulation stand with the Lord on Mount Zion, which is the Mount of Olives, at the end of it. So if we go back to Revelation 7, we see where they are saved. Chapter 6 is the seal judgments. First four seal ju- or the, the seal judgments up through 6. 7 opens the trumpet judgments, what happens about three years later. But here is the, the 144,000. They are sealed sometime in the first part of the tribulation. They receive this mark. And when they get through the tribulation, they are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, people have been trying to kill them for seven years. And if you take 144,000 people over the course of seven years, even young, healthy people, some of them are going to die. Some are going to die by accident. Some are going to die by murder. You take a people group of that size, something's going to happen, but not these. It says, after this, Revelation 7, 1, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. No wind would blow on the earth. Without wind currents, you don't get rain. There's all kinds of things. Sounds like maybe a drought. We're going to find out in chapter 11. Guess who shows up? Elijah. What was he known for? A drought. And it says, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now that's telling us that the early part of the tribulation. There's, with the seal judgments, there's going to be judgments that intensify. But there's not going to be any major damage to the earth at the first part of the tribulation. It's going to ease into it, and then it's going to get progressively worse. When we see Revelation 16 today, it just keeps getting getting worse. You wonder, how could it get any worse? But A word of advice, don't ever say, it just can't get worse in my life, because usually it will. It says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, from every tribe of the sons of Israel, tribe of Judah, 12,000, Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, Asher, 12,000, Naphtali, 12,000, Manasseh, 12,000, Simeon, 12,000, Levi, 12,000, Issachar, 12,000, Zebulun, 12,000. The tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. It's interesting that it says that there's not just 144,000 total, but it specifically says 12,000 from each of these tribes. Now, Zechariah 14.4 kind of connects the dots with Revelation 14 that we just saw about the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Zechariah 14.4 says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle 
from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Now, this is quite a picture, quite specific. The Lord doesn't have any problems giving specific prophecies. That is an example of his directive will, his sovereign will, his overruling will, where where he is actively doing something in history. Now, a lot of the things that are going on, like the blasphemy of the God of the heaven that's going on, uh, that is passive will. God didn't did not say that that's the way that you ought to be. Is blaspheme me? He recognized that's what was going to happen by the fallen creatures at that at uh, that point in history. Now there are twelve thousand from every tribe but Dan. You go through and you look at those things and you go, hmm, what do we have here? And you find out that. Uh, uh, yeah, Manasseh and Ephraim there, but it mentions Manasseh, it mentions Joseph, but there's no mention of the tribe of Dan. It rejected the gospel. Dan was a mess. It was a snake that happens in the road and strikes the horse's heels and the rider falls backwards. It became a stumbling block to their brothers and adopted their own priesthood that worships a graven image. So this is Genesis 49:17 which says, Dan shall be a snake along the road, an adder along the trail that strikes the horse's heels, and the rider falls backwards. Judges 18, verse 27 to 31, talks about the fact that they set up and worshipped a graven image. That was what they did. Many think it was a golden calf cult that was there, but that's not found in that passage. The tribe of Dan will still be in existence, but will not have the necessary numbers to make the 12,000. Now we know that because we keep reading. See these jigsaw puzzles. They fit together eventually. I've gotten so angry at jigsaw puzzles before. Because I can't find a piece. That I often want to take the scissors. And make it fit. And yet that is not the way. That you do with prophecies. We have no authority. To start cutting up the puzzle pieces. That God has laid in front of us. To make them fit the way that we want them to fit. Ezekiel 48, 1 says, Now these are the tribe, the names of the tribes from the northern extremity. This is a millennial setup of the millennial temple with the tribes located around the millennial temple. And it says, From the northern extreme, extremity, beside the way of Hethlon to Lebo Hamath, as far as Hatsar Anan at the border of Damascus toward the north, besides Hamath, running from east to west, Dan. One portion leads off with that. So Dan has an inheritance in the millennium, so the tribe of Dan has not ceased to exist. They just didn't have the necessary 12,000 male virgin Jews at the outset of the tribulation. And that's reasonably all that you can say. It didn't cease to exist because it will be there during the millennial kingdom. Now, the 144,000 are evidently evangelistic agents to the still-dispersed Jews and to the Gentiles of the tribulation. So they've got this mark, the mark of their Lord. I believe the mark of the beast is obviously a counterfeit of it of of some kind because that's what Satan is good at, is counterfeiting the truth. The 144,000, needless to say, 
said it way too many times. They're, they're not Jehovah's Witnesses they're talking about here. Because it makes it very clear they're male. I know that's a sexist statement in the um, world that we live in. But they're male, they're virgin. And most of them, a lot of people say, well, what's a big deal about that? Well, it's a big deal when, the, when God says it's a big deal. And they're Jews. They have a racial connection to Abraham. That's the first personality of the tribulation. And you have to realize, when did they get sealed? Early part of the trib. They all survive all the stars falling out of heaven and everything else. And they end up on Mount Zion, standing there with the Lamb, with the Lord, when He comes back to fight and to destroy all of His enemies. Next we have the two witnesses. Now, these two witnesses are identified as two olive trees and two lampstands. We see them introduced in Revelation 11. See, if we go through the book of Revelation... <coughs> One is the introduction, the audience warm-up, if you will. Two and three are the letters to the churches. Four and five is the scene in heaven after the rapture. Six is the seal judgments. Seven is 144,000. Eight and nine are the trumpet judgments. Ten is the thunder judgments and the angel Michael that takes his stand. We're going to see him in, in just a little bit. And then when you get to 11, 12, and 13, you get to personalities. 11 is the two witnesses primarily. 12 is angelic conflict that talks about Satan, the serpent of old, the devil, the dragon. 13 is the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. So 11 to 13 is telling you who are the, who are the major players. 14 is the two reapings trying to get us the, the bookends, part of the puzzle pieces, part of the straight edges, on if you will, and showing a connection there between the, the corners of, with the dispensations. Because 14 talks about a reaping over the earth, you might remember. 14 is, first of all, the, the 144,000 with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Next in that chapter at the end, you find the, the, Reaping over the earth, which is a picture of the rapture. The righteous are taken out, the wicked are left. The last one, you find a reaping that goes into the earth, which is going to take out the wicked and leave the righteous. Fifteen is the scene in heaven just before the second advent. Sixteen is the bold judgments. Okay, these are, this is where it just gets worse and worse and worse. Sores poured out on mankind. Uh, it's going to happen. The sun's going to go nova. It's going to be a mess, an utter mess. And then 17 and 18 is, who are the two major players that helped bring all this about that maybe could have stopped it and didn't? Now, <clears throat> these two witnesses in chapter 11, when you read chapter 11 in the book of Revelation... And I'll be there, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now that's a sign of mourning, a sign of loss. When their prophets are out clothed in sackcloth, <clears throat> the people better pay attention. Of course, if you read the Bible, you'll find most of them didn't. 
these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These are the two olive trees. Now, if you're a Jew, you'll have a frame of reference for it. If you've been to synagogue and been reading, uh, following along with their reading of the Scripture every three years. Now, Zechariah the prophet spoke of these lampstands, chapter 14, chapter 4, rather, in the book of Zechariah. <clears throat> it says, Then I said to him, this angel that was giving him the information, I is Zechariah, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And he was given an interesting picture, a vision, and he's asking questions about it like a lot of the prophets did. And I answered the second time, I said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me, saying, Do you not know who these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, <clears throat> that's interesting. Moses and Elijah, well, they've, they've uh, come back, right? Elijah just was caught up in a whirlwind. But they've, they've just come back, and they think, Well, this is... This is who it's got to be. But if we were to go in context, the book of Zechariah, we'd end up, of course, back in chapter 3. And it's talking there about removing the iniquity of Israel in one day. So this is a a lead-in. Here is Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. They are getting ready to... um, they, They won't be there at the second advent. But they're telling people, he's coming back and you better get ready for it. He's going to cleanse the land. He's going to remove the iniquity. He's going to defeat all of his enemies. They've got quite a message they're preaching for 1260 days. Now, the olive trees, when you see the, the olives, that was the anointing oil, and that speaks to the spiritual side of Israel, which is anointed of God. Actually, Romans 11, verse 17 and 24 It says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So it's talking there about the spiritual side of Israel, Gentiles being grafted in. Romans 11, 24, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul was dealing with a problem along about 56 A.D. when he wrote the the book of Romans. And he's dealing with a problem because Gentiles are coming into the church. And the Jews are starting to think, well, this should be just for us only. Uh, There's always that tension between people that are different. And how many people are different on this world? Everybody's different. So there's a tension that runs with this this world, no matter who you are or where you are. And so here's a tension, and Paul is writing to say, except the Gentiles in. They had the circumcision issue early on in the church about, well, if Gentiles become part of us, we want the, the men to go through circumcision to be really become a part of us according to the law of Moses. And boy, that was a battle royal that um, only the grace of God got the church through that. That could have, um, that could have torn the church apart, but it 
It did not. Cooler heads prevailed. More gracious heads prevailed, actually. The lampstand speak of that which illumines, that which is truly holy. To a Jew, the lampstand takes them right back to the tabernacle. They start thinking about a lampstand, and again, if they are... If they know anything about their holy scriptures, it goes right back to the tabernacle because the priests walked into the table of showbread with a loaf for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then there was the lampstand that lit up the holy place. So it was the only light in the holy place. It lit up the bread that came down out of heaven. It lit up the altar of incense so they could burn incense, which is a picture of prayers to God. So as a picture of bread, they would go, they would get their uh, their scripture, the bread that came down out of heaven, they would get that, and then it would be illuminated by the lampstand so they could offer up holy prayers to God. But the lampstand, speak of that which illumines that which is truly holy. That which defines and illuminates holiness is the law and the prophets, which Messiah came to fulfill. And this, it's beautiful the way this whole this puzzle fits together. Uh, and it's no, uh, no rough edges. See, when you get all the puzzle pieces together, it's still got to fit into the right part of the puzzle. Well, <clears throat> Matthew 5.17, Do not think I came to abolish the law, or the prophets, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. Matthew seven twelve. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way. You want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What is holy? Loving God and loving others with that same love. Now, oftentimes, I've been overseas a lot, teaching pastors, and we start talking about the two witnesses, because I always want to know who are the two witnesses. And and there's a, a question that arises... Uh, almost every time it comes up. Because I say Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah was the chief prophet. So here's law and the prophets. And then, but the, the question comes up, well, they think it's Elijah and Enoch. Because Elijah didn't taste death. He was caught up in a whirlwind. The pre-flood patriarch Enoch about the same way. He was snatched out of there. It was a picture of the of the rapture. And so they often think that it's Elijah and Enoch. But why, why is that that position uh, really, I think, why does it lack evidence is the best way to say that. Uh, the pre-flood patriarch Enoch, although he did not die, was never a part of Israel. To which the olive tree and the Lampstand has special significance. Thus, he's probably not one of the witnesses. Enoch was also a part of the age of the Gentiles, not the age of Israel, which aligns better with Daniel's 70th week, which is focused primarily for Jews. So when you start looking at it, it is a pre-flood and a post-flood 
patriarch. And you could look at it that way, both of them caught up, and you could say pre-flood, post-flood, they're both there uh, representing what's going on. Uh, but when you start looking at it, we're looking at the tribulation, which is the last seven years of the age of Israel. Nothing to do with the age of the Gentiles. What is going to make more sense to the Jews, which is who they are sent to minister to out in the wilderness of Judea? What's going to make more sense? Moses and Elijah. Those two, the law and the prophets. They're going to have, a, uh, I believe, a lot uh, better. Not that Enoch wouldn't have a good ministry, but I think that Moses and Elijah are better representatives of the... Um, better representatives of the age of Israel. Now, the evidence indicates the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, the two heavenly witnesses at the Lord's transfiguration. They attest to the anointed ones, fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and in which the Father is well pleased. When it says in Revelation 11, my two witnesses. That's the Lord's two witnesses. That's pretty personal. Well, um, Malachi 4, 5, nobody hardly disagrees with Elijah because Malachi 4, 5 says, I'm going to send you Elijah before the coming of the day of the Lord. Okay? So nobody really argues with Elijah because of the Old Testament passage. Matthew 17 First three verses, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with, with him. So Moses and Elijah and the Lord at the transfiguration. What is the transfiguration? He gave those three witnesses, because the mouth by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every fact be confirmed. He gave those three witnesses just a glimpse of glory is what he did. He, he basically, he's the God-man. That's who he has been. He's always been that way. He's not a man that became God. He's always been God. And so here is a brief glimpse of the glory of the Lord. And he let Peter, James, and John see that. So the two witnesses he chose to witness who he is and to say in whom the Father is well pleased. The Father himself spoke from heaven. Behold my beloved Son. Mark chapter 9. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. He's there to fulfill the law and the prophets. Sounds like he had a meeting with the people that represent the law and the prophets. Luke chapter 9, 28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, 
the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, the ministry of these two witnesses is a call for repentance of the Jews. During the first half of the tribulation out in the desert. And it's that Revelation 11.3, I'll grant authority to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They were supernaturally protected for a specified period of time. Revelation 11.5, if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. They have special powers. Revelation eleven six. They have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days that they're prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Uh, <clears throat> Moses turned water into blood. You might remember Exodus chapter 7. And Elijah was given the power of famine. 1 Kings 17. Two more pieces that look like these pieces fit together. They're going to die a martyr's death at the hand of the Antichrist. We've read that many times. When they had finished their testimony after the, 1160, or the 1260 days, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Egypt. In case you didn't know which ones, where also their Lord was crucified. The great city is Jerusalem. And those who the, tri- the those from the peoples, tribes, and tongues, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. The world reaction? Jubilation. It's interesting how the world is getting more and more just out and out hostile to anything regarding Jehovah Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, to anything regarding Him or the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry. They'll send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They won't be celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ with gifts as they frequently do, it appears. But boy, they're going to make them a new, a, a, a new um, celebration, a new festival time. After three and a half days, they're slowly resuscitated as the entire world watches. Um, after three and a half days, the breath of life from Theos, from God, came into them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. It's interesting, isn't it, how the old devil thinks he wins from time to time. And every time he does, God just pulls the plug and calls them home. The prophetic fulfillment is further authenticated with the massive earthquake. 
See, three and a half years into the tribulation, middle point of the tribulation. <clears throat> Revelation eleven thirteen. that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There's some Jews that actually get saved as a result of this. They get to watch the resuscitation. This is the end of the second woe, the killing of the two witnesses, which began with the sixth trumpet judgment. The sixth trumpet is the second woe. Revelation eleven fourteen, the second woe is past, the third woe is coming quickly. The timing. As we see these marks of timing, they're very important because the straight lines of the puzzle after this happened then, after this happened then. These lay out the timelines where all these things have to fit. Now, <clears throat> the timing is clearly identified as near the middle of the tribulation, close to when his Antichrist, the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple because the nations only have another 42 months to trample Jerusalem underfoot. Revelation 11, verse 1. 1 and 2. We go back to the start of that chapter where it established a chronology for us. And it says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, that there will be a temple. It will be a tribulational temple. It is not the millennial temple. And uh, I believe this. He's saying go measure it because it, the millennial temple measurements are specified in the book of Ezekiel. So they, they, when they start measuring a tribulational temple, they're going to find out it doesn't fit. It's not the same one. Take this staff, John, go measure it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, the Gentiles. They will tread underfoot the holy city, for 42 months. This tells us that right after what, what has happened here, the two witnesses die right at the midpoint. And then what's going to happen here, this altar and those who measure it, these Gentiles are going to tread underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years, roughly 1,260 days. When you put the details together on the timeline, you find it right around the third anniversary of the rapture. That fifth trumpet blows. The demons are let out for five months. Now that takes us to three years and five months. And then the witnesses are 1,260 days. So you have approximately a 30-day window in between that Five, the, the demons coming out of the pit for five months. You have about a 30-day window there in which it looks like fits the uh, Antichrist taking his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be a god, the signing of the treaty with uh, Israel. You find 30, at the exact midpoint, the two witnesses are killed and then resurrected. You find the Jews, the abomination of desolation, see, 
is the idol being set up in the temple to commemorate the Antichrist. When they see that, they're supposed to flee to the mountains, Matthew 24. So this is all fitting together uh, perfectly. And in that 30-day window is several events that need to happen within the 30-day window. In order to uh, for all the events to be laid out, this is a, this is a model that lets us take a good look at it. So as we start putting the puzzle pieces together, we're bound by what they're connect. We we're bound by what they're connected to. We're bound by looking at the the pieces, fitting together the ones that are similar in the proper way, and then putting them correctly into this puzzle. So that's the two witnesses. We saw the 144,000 and the two witnesses. Next week, we're going to take a look at the dictator of the revived Roman Empire. That is one of his names. We're going to look at, at six more of his names. <clears throat> and he is, uh, uh, this is the guy leading the charge against the Lord God Almighty. He is going to lose. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for this blessing. We thank you for the test you have given to us. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that have been placed before us in this day and time in which we live. And Father, I pray that we would, we would get the puzzle together in our own minds, not be led astray by all the folks out there trying to do crazy things and trying to, um, trying to scare us to death. Father, let our trust be in you. We know that you see the end from the beginning. You have laid it out accordingly. And, Father, we know that no matter what happens to us here on earth, Father, we have a heavenly home that is guaranteed, a place in the heavenlies where we can spend time with you forever. Father, let us look forward to that and be calm in the midst of the storm. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.